Hola amigos, que tal? My name is Jalen and you are listening to my podcast, A Garden in the Desert. This week on the podcast, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about a sports-related topic because Jalen Green recently announced that instead of going to college to play in the NCAA, he is giving up his NCAA eligibility to go and play in the G League. I am not the only commentator to wholeheartedly support this decision. I actually think it's a decision that even more elite college athletes should make. So I've spent the last week or so reading as much data and as much information as I humanly could, so much data and information, it honestly gave me a headache to see if I could answer once and for all if college student athletes should be paid and to what extent the NCAA is exploiting their best talent. So if you are a fan of basketball like me and you're a fan of NCAA basketball like me, sit back, relax, and get comfortable because I'm going to break down the issue of the corruption and hypocrisy of the NCAA. So y'all, please excuse my house robe and my no makeup right now. Like when I tell y'all I was not in the mood, like I was not in the mood, okay? I had a rough day. I had to take it off. I had to put my pajamas on. Like it just, it'd be like that sometimes. But okay, let's get into this. So Jalen Green is going to the G League. Isaiah Todd is also going to the G League and they are both going to be making six figures, which is incredible. That's an incredible salary um, for the G League because from what I've heard, the G League be paying people like 30, 40K, which I mean, honestly, that is like a starter salary at most jobs in America. But I mean... Anyway, fun little fact though, I don't know if you guys know a lot about the name Jalen, but obviously I'm biased because it's my name, so I have a predisposition to like people who are also named Jalen. The name Jalen is actually nine times more popular in college basketball than it is in the general population, and it's five times more popular in college football than it is in the general population, so... Clearly, all of our moms were inspired by the Jalen Rose. If you don't know who Jalen Rose is, he was one of the Fab Five basketball players for the University of Michigan. And the popularity of the name Jalen actually skyrocketed in 1992 and 1993 when Jalen Rose and the rest of the Fab Five were just like out here balling like Jordan to be, well, okay, maybe I shouldn't say balling like Jordan because that might be a little bit much, but they was balling though. No. They was balling. Anyway, so the G League, basically, if you're not familiar with it, it's a semi-professional league where NBA players can pretty much, boom, future aspiring NBA players can hone their skills and ultimately, hopefully, achieve the goal of being drafted by a regular NBA team and then making like boo crazy money, which we already know NBA players make crazy money. But there's also another collegiate league that is going to be coming out in a couple of years in June 2021. That's called the Professional Collegiate League. And that's going to be eight teams. Um, and it's going to be an independent league. And it's actually partially founded by former NBA All-Star David West. So you're starting to see a lot more of these leagues that are kind of like semi-pro um, or minor league almost, you could say, which I'll make a point about minor league sports leagues a little bit later on in the podcast. But basically what you're starting to see is this growth or this new interest in semi-pro leagues as almost like a middle ground between high school or college and playing in the big time, in the big time pros. 
Basically, though, the thing is, is when you decide to go play in one of these leagues, one of these semi-pro leagues, you have to give up your NCAA eligibility, which means that even if you decide to go to a traditional university or college down the line, you can't play any NCAA sports. So to a lot of athletes or maybe their families, that's a little bit risky because you don't know if at some point you might want to go back to college and play for the NCAA. But I'm going to make the point a little bit that you ain't going to ever want to do that if you're elite. But I just wanted to break that down for people who might not really understand kind of like what's at stake for people who are making that decision because it is a really, really big decision and it really will take your life in a certain direction for sure. I mean, that's undeniable for sure. Um, The thing about the NCAA though and playing an NCAA eligibility is that those college years for an athlete, so we're saying the age of like 18 to maybe like 22, I mean, for some athletes, that's their prime years. They may not ever see the same level of athletic ability that they're seeing at those years. So these really aren't the best, like the best years of their lives. I don't know if y'all are familiar with a gentleman named Kai Soto. Um, He's seven foot two and he's expected to possibly, hopefully, my fingers are like double, double. You see, I got like four crosses. Like my fingers are so crossed that he will become the first Filipino NBA player ever. He supposedly, rumors, rumor has it, that he's also considering going to play in the G League. And so, like I said, I'm a really big proponent of them going directly to semi-pro, G League, professional, collegiate, whatever league, any way that they can get paid because they need to maximize their youth and their talent while they have it because there's no guarantee that you won't get injured down the line. There's no guarantee that, you know, you'll be able to make money off of your body. Making money off of your body is not something that most people are able to do forever. I mean, like, look at strippers. There might be a couple 50-year-old joints in the strip club, but for the most part, you know, there's young, it's younger girls because after a while, you're not able to still make money off your looks, off of your pole tricks, after your athleticism. So you want to capitalize on that while you're young, while you have it. So I'm all the way for it. I hope more um, high school athletes make that consideration. I know LaMelo Ball made history a few weeks ago, weeks ago, years ago, sorry, he's it's been some years. He went to go play in Lithuania when he was 15. He became the youngest ever professional basketball player by making that decision at 15 to go play in Lithuania. And to some people, that was probably really controversial because they're like, bro, you're not even done with high school yet. But I mean... Clearly, he didn't need to go to high school, okay? (laughs) Clearly, it wasn't for him because he's doing just fine. Something that a lot of other athletes do, um, which is called the one and done rule, which is basically like you go and play in college for one year and then you're done. There's a ton of really, really well-known, really successful, really talented NBA players who have followed the one and done rule. Uh, Some of them include Zion Williamson, who now plays for the New Orleans Pelicans, who was super, 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 super hyped up this season. It's unfortunate that we're not going to get to see him finish the season because we didn't get to see him in the beginning of the season. So Lord Jesus, coronavirus just got everybody fucked up. But Zion Williamson was one of the biggest recruits of, not I shouldn't even say one of, the biggest recruits of the NBA last year. Kevin Durant was also one and done. Kyrie Irving was one and done. John Wall was one and done. Andre Drummond, DeMar DeRozan, Ben Simmons, Jalen Brown, another Jalen! Carl Anthony Towns, D'Angelo Russell, Anthony Davis, Austin Rivers, and Tristan Thompson. And there's even more. That's just like the number of guys I could fit on this one piece of paper for you guys. Um, 
Another thing, too, about the one and done rule is that a lot of players who have followed the rule or players who haven't have long been very vocal about why it's just not working and why it's not effective. Like they don't even feel like that one year is like it's like they just kind of feel like they're wasting a year. And honestly, I don't blame them because it does seem like they're they're wasting a year, a year that they could be getting paid, a year that they could be working on their skills at an NBA training facility. Like it just kind of seems like we're forcing them to do this one year of collegiate penance and then they're like able to move on and just it, it, it is kind of silly so to combat this silliness there's actually been legislation that's been introduced in california and it's called the fair pay to play act and it, it did pass and so it's expected to go into effect on january 1st of 2023 Basically, what this act says is that any school that makes more than $10 million in media rights revenue, those players can be paid for their likeness. I think that that's really, really important and really groundbreaking as well because this person's likeness, this person's image, if it's going on um, video game covers and, you know, magazines and all this type of stuff, like, I mean, I think it makes sense, but they should be able to at least make money off of that. Like if it's an appearance or whatever, that their face is plastered all over. I think it is really unfair for the NCAA to not allow them to make um, money off of their likeness. I'll share what I think about them being paid an actual salary by the NCAA or a salary by the university in a little bit. But I think that generally speaking, the general population is in in agreement that they should at least be able to make money off of their likeness at the very least. In fact, LeBron James and Bernie Sanders have both vocally supported the bill, even though the NCAA is basically saying like, if certain schools in California do that, then like they're not going to be able to compete in NCAA tournaments because the NCAA is petty, 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 they're petty. Why are they so petty? Petty. Also, just to top that point off, 80% of college students actually support NCAA athletes being able to make money off their image. So the NCAA themselves are really the only people who think that that's a bad idea. Petty. Pet. But if we're not just talking about likeness, likeness though, and we're talking about actually being paid a salary by the university or by the NCAA, the issue does get drastically more complicated, unfortunately. And this is where, like I said, I got a headache trying to break down some of this information and some of this data because it's a lot. So let's start from the top, right? Basically, the NCAA makes $8 billion per per year in revenue. All of that revenue, I'm not even going to say the majority, all of that revenue comes from football and March Madness. There are 24 schools in the NCAA right now that make over $100 million per year. In 2015, for example, Texas A&M University made $192 million, and not far behind was the University of Texas with $183 million. If you're from Texas, you know very well that football is a huge, 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 huge part of culture, lifestyle, everything in Texas. So it's not surprising that some of the biggest universities making the most money, sorry, I had a brain fart just now, all the biggest universities making the most money, with the exception of probably like Alabama, which I mean ain't that far from Texas, really. They're all making a crap ton of money off of these football games and the media rights to the football games. 
Basically, critics of the way that this is working out right now and vocal critics of the NCAA are basically alleging that the NCAA is now a corporate athletics complex and is no longer running like the quote, quote, nonprofit that it was initially intended to be managed and run as. Nonprofit institutions behave totally different from corporations. So I'm going to break that down a little bit for you guys right now. Um, the essence and the crux of that argument essentially is that because these nonprofits are parading themselves as nonprofits, but they're not really acting like nonprofits because they're making corporate type money is that the players are really the ones who are suffering. So on average, and this is just what I was able to look up, I don't know how accurate this you know, this number could be. It could be way higher, it could be way lower, but let's just say on average, the typical Division One athlete dedicates about 43.3 hours per week to his or her sport. That's basically like a full-time job. Most people work a 40 to 50 hour work week and they get paid for it. So these athletes are essentially, on top of being told they have to go to class and being Um, put under academic um, obligations, taking tests, going to study groups, whatever. They're also putting in the same amount of work as a 40-hour job, but they're not getting paid for it. A lot of them are missing a lot of sleep. They're missing class. Um, And while they do receive generous academic scholarships that do cover usually tuition, fees, room, board, food, transportation, a lot of them are saying that it's just not enough. On top of that, A lot of student athletes, unfortunately, aren't even going to class. They're either cheating, they're getting their grades fixed, they're like these coaches and these NCAA officials are pretty much manipulating the system so that they can say they were in class, but they they weren't actually in class, which really takes away a lot of the benefit of that full scholarship because if you're not actually in class and if you're not actually learning, then what what good is the scholarship for? It's once again, it's like you're wasting four years of your life to play this sport with the hope that you're going to go pro someday but you don't know if that's going to happen so at the very least should be you should be able to take advantage of the free education that you're being given on top of just like the grade changing and the the cheating and the whatever the, the missing class missing exams and all of that there's also a lot of controversies about like boosters and donors doing inappropriate things to compensate players in under the table or off the books sort of ways. So being out here in Vegas and being around so much sports betting, I'm starting to get more acclimated to some of the strategies and tactics that bookies use. Um, and one of those that's really popular is called point shaving. What point shaving is, if you guys don't know, is basically say you're a bookie and you bet that a certain team is going to beat another team by a certain margin, right? And so the team doesn't actually have to lose the game because it's not about like losing per se. It's just about making sure that they win within a certain margin. So if they start getting too far ahead in the points against the other team, they may miss shots on purpose, draw fouls on purpose to lower that margin so that the bookie is able to make a profit. And then in exchange, the bookie might give them things like money, gifts, girls, drugs, Lord Jesus, who who knows? I didn't play NCAA basketball, so I don't know what the perks are. But maybe if you played NCAA basketball, let me know like what the perks be. Because I'm sure it's some nice ass perks because these fools in, ba- in Vegas, like... 
they take this gambling seriously. So I know they're willing to reward guys that are willing to kind of play the game with them. And so when you're not paying these guys and when these guys aren't able to take advantage of the education that they're there for, they can't make money off their likeness. Like, can you really blame them for wanting to get some money on the side? Listen, I'm all here for getting shit on the side. Like, give it to me on the side. Um, Just a little aside, though, speaking of things on the side, there's a really, really great documentary on HBO right now. It's called The Running Rebels of UNLV. And if you're not familiar with the history of basketball, men's basketball at UNLV and their super, super famous coach, I'm going to screw up his last name, but his name is Jerry Tark. Oh, God. Tarkanian? Jerry Tarkanian, I believe is how you say his name. But he really goes by Tark the Shark. That was like his nickname all around Vegas. And his organization was constantly getting harassed by the NCAA for things like inappropriate recruitment violations, like all this types of stuff. And so it's really ironic because what the NCAA, I think, does to shoot themselves in the foot to really make them look like the bad guys in a lot of ways is they cherry pick when to enforce rules and when not to enforce rules. And whenever you're not consistent with your rules and how you're enforcing them, you open yourself up to just being a bad guy off the break. Because I actually don't think the NCAA is as bad as a lot of people make it out to be. I just think that they're hypocritical. And when you're hypocritical, people don't like that. And that just makes you look bad like all the way across the board. So While I would say overall about the NCAA, like a lot of institutions in this country is definitely corrupt. Um, I don't think that universities are quite as profitable and that college sports are quite as profitable as the media sometimes makes them out to be. So now I'm going to break down some data for you guys. The NCAA has three divisions, D1, D2, D3. D1 athletes are eligible for full academic scholarships. D2 athletes are um, eligible for partial scholarships. And D3 athletes are not necessarily eligible for any type of scholarship. It just depends on how much funding they supposedly have left over. The NCAA classifies its students and its athletes as amateurs. They are not considered professionals. Therefore, in their mind, they are not eligible to be paid. And like I said, this is all according according to what they say. So where does the money come from? Like I already mentioned, a lot of it comes from Division I's men's basketball, and a lot of it comes from championship ticket sales. That's pretty much where the money is generated. Then they claim to disperse that money to student assistant funds, educational programs, and grants and allocations. So essentially, this money is going to various um, nonprofit packages that is then supposedly used to fund the athlete's education, probably different events, different things like that to basically support these athletes that are classified as NCAA collegiate athletes, right? So... The unfortunate thing is that the majority of NCAA sports are actually not profitable at all. The only sports that are profitable or that break even are men's basketball, men's ice hockey, men's lacrosse, wrestling, and baseball. Every other sport is not profitable and it doesn't break even, which means that it's operating at a loss so that the NCAA actually loses money by sponsoring those athletes to play the sport. How many NCAA athletes are there? Well, total, there's 460,000 of them. 
there are 176,000 Division I athletes who are eligible for those full scholarships, like right off the back. That's the automatic, like it's no negotiation, like you automatically get that full scholarship. 351 universities or colleges in America fall under Division I, 308 fall under Division II, and 443 fall under Division III. So I bring that up just so that we can have a baseline for understanding exactly how many athletes there are and exactly how many schools we're talking about when we're talking about this issue. So I did some math because I wanted to see um, if... I could find a link between the $8 billion of reported NCAA revenue and the number of students that they're funding these scholarships for. So if we do some math, the average cost of an in-state tuition, this is just tuition, this isn't counting housing, room, board, anything like that. The average cost of in-state tuition at a public university is about $10,000 per student. If you multiply $10,000 by 176,000 students, you get $1.7 billion. So that's not the full $8 billion. That's about an, um, I was going to say an eighth. What's two, what's two divided by eighth? I don't know, but it's, I'm not really good at math, you guys, so forgive me. But two divided by eighth, two eighths. Oh, wait, no, don't you have to put like, okay, wait, if I put the two and the two, that gives me one. It's a fourth. It's a quarter. <laughs> Ooh, y'all, don't judge me. I'm real bad at fractions was not my thing. I think they introduced fractions in the third grade. I hated the third grade. Anywho. So that's in-state public tuition, right? So that would be the lowest end. That's assuming you're only bringing in athletes from your state and you're at a public university. The highest end of that would be private institutions. Private institutions cost on average $33,000 per year in tuition only. We're not even talking about room, board, once again, food, housing. If you multiply 33 racks by 176,000 students, you get $5.8 billion. So if you round that up to $6 billion, now you're looking at, I'm going to jump out on a limb here and say that's three-fourths? See, I got this. I got this mental math, though. Okay, so basically, we're looking at between a quarter of the estimated revenue and three quarters of the estimated revenue, somewhere in there. Now, like I said, I'm not counting for Division two and three athletes, and obviously, every athlete's going to be different. Some might be out of state, some might be private, some might be public. So these are just really loose numbers. But I do think that it's important to acknowledge the fact that if we're using that range, I mean, we are in the billions. So it does make sense that some billions of dollars are are going to these scholarships. So I don't think that they're fully bullshitting on that. I do think that they're being somewhat honest to a degree about where that revenue is going. It is going to scholarships. And like I mentioned before, it's just tuition and fees. I'm giving you that $10,000, that $33,000 estimate. We're not talking about all the other things that we know, like books, food, um, I was going to say field trips, but you don't go on field trips in college, but you guys get the idea. Now, I will throw an accounting wrench into my math that I just gave you guys just now, and I will admit that I don't know what the actual operational value of educating a student in college is versus the market value, because $10,000 or $33,000 is the market value. And what we know about market value is a lot of times prices are marked up dramatically. So say you buy a can of Coca-Cola, it probably costs Pepsi like two cents to make a can of Coca-Cola, but they sell it for a dollar, right? Huge markup. Now, I don't know if it's fair to really equate Coca-Cola with college tuition. I don't know, but 
I will say that I would guess that the operational costs of renting a university or a college are, are pretty expensive. You're thinking things like the dormitories, the food you're serving, the air conditioning, the electricity, the water bill, campus transportation systems to take the kids all over campus, campus security, the classrooms, the classroom furniture, the projectors, the labs. Like I would imagine that a lot of these things do cost a lot of money and universities are expensive. Kids are expensive. Hell, we know kids are expensive. You got kids, you know kids be expensive. So if you're housing and supporting hundreds of thousands of other people's kids, I would imagine that it would get pretty costly. I do, though, need to also bring up some other statistics that is not just about the cost of educating these students, but also the percentage of students that we're really talking about when we're talking about the people who would even be eligible to get paid by a university or NCAA at all. So of all high school athletes, only 7% actually go on to play varsity level college sports. And of that 7%, only 2% go on to be in the Division One. So like... If you're even a Division One athlete whose likeness is being used, like you're like in the top, 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 top percent of athletes in this country. So it's not a lot of people. However, I do understand that for the people that it is, there's a lot at stake for them, which is why I don't even think they should be going this route at all. I think they should just be going straight to the semi-pro leagues and not even dealing with the NCAA. Because the reality is, is that the vast majority of college athletes do not go pro. However, the NCAA does have a college graduation or degree conferment rate of 88% in 2017. So 88% of their athletes are graduating with their degrees. Now, whether they're learning anything in the classroom, I don't know. But they're getting them degrees. The unfortunate part, too, about it is that race plays a huge, huge, huge factor in this argument because the majority of these football players and basketball players, let's be honest, they're African-American. And we know that African-American students in general typically come from lower income families than their white counterparts and that they probably need the money a lot more. In fact, 55% of African-Americans or black people agree with paying student athletes a salary for their contributions to the university. So that obviously tells you that there's a racial imbalance between who's really being affected by this and who could really stand to benefit. The universities, though, they vary widely based on the school. So Florida State, for example, which is another one of those $100 million schools, their coach is the highest paid public employee in Florida, and he makes $5 million a year. $5 million a year. Now, I'm not being a hater. But $5 million a year, that's pretty extravagant as a public servant. Like, you don't need $5 million a year, bro. Like, $500,000 a year, I think, would would be good. You could make some good investments. You could send your own kids to college. Like, when you start getting to the millions for a coach's salary, that's when my eyebrows start to go, like, mm -mm. mm-mm. That's corrupt, for sure. 
There have been coaches' salaries that have been reported to be, you know, as low as 600000 to as high as $6 million. And obviously, the more championships that you win, the more media revenue you're going to generate, and the more you get paid. And that's, I think, where the crux of the issue really is, is that some people, select coaches, select administrators, they are making a lot of money. And then the other universities, the smaller universities, they're not generating nearly as much or enjoying those benefits nearly as as much. So what you have is this super unfair system or poorly weighted system, just like a lot of other systems that we have in this country where only a small group of people are eating and everybody else is, is struggling, essentially. And who struggles most of all, of course, is the athletes. So of the 351 um, Division I schools, if 24 of those schools make over $100 per year, that's 7% of the schools. So a small amount. So if we know that the system is corrupt, if we know that only certain people are eating, if we know that something needs to change, how do we do it? Well, like a lot of other things in American politics, it's complicated. There's a couple of really, really big inherent flaws with paying student athletes. The first is that would all student athletes be paid regardless, the same, regardless of their profitability? Probably not. And so then how do you justify paying only a few athletes and then not paying everybody else? Because while you do acknowledge that you have only a few athletes who are driving that revenue, then it's almost like the other people are like, you should be grateful that we're letting you play this sport and you still have to put in those 40, 50 hours a week. Like it just, it would get complicated. There would, it would be difficult, I think, to put in a system that would pay people fairly if you started to pay the athletes directly from the universities themselves. The second issue is that with female athletes who actually peak earlier in their careers, they don't tend to have the length of time to play as their male counterparts do, would they be paid equal to the males? And I did an episode on the end the the WNBA um, a few months ago, and a lot of you guys, especially my male listeners, you all are very adamant that WNBA players do not deserve to make the same amount of money as NBA players do because they don't generate the same revenue. So I'm going to just go out on a limb here and assume that you guys would feel the exact same about the NCAA, which means that these girls and these young women are not going to make any money. So once again, we're putting in another system that only benefits certain people and doesn't benefit everybody. Another flaw, what about the smaller schools? The smaller schools who don't have big cult followings, who don't have people showing up to paint their faces in, you know, their colors. What happens to those athletes? Do those athletes not get paid at all? Do they, like, how is that going to work, right? Do you only pay Division One? Do you not pay Division Two? Do you, do you pay Division One and then give Division Two scholarships? Like, how does, how does that work and how do you make that equitable? It would be difficult for sure. Um, I think really what we have to talk about, too, when you're looking at those flaws, um, is who really pays for these college sports and what would paying these athletes do to change the college sports? Like, would athletes even go to class at all at this point, now with their employees of the university? Would they be allowed to change teams because of different financial motivations? So 
how do we figure out exactly where the money is coming from? Because like I said, the NCAA, they're claiming that that's going to scholarships. The NCAA is not then necessarily funding that money back into universities. How universities are typically funded is going to depend on whether you have a public university or a private university. And you can actually look this up on the Department of Education. You can't get the numbers for private institutions institutions, unfortunately, but you can get them for public universities. And so when you're looking at a private university, that money is going to come from essentially the students, alumni, donors, gifts, like you pay higher tuition because you are funding the school. Public universities get a lot of their funding from the taxpayer, whether that's from state taxes, local taxes, even sometimes federal taxes, which I'm not going to sit here and say that public universities, oh, I'm sorry, private universities sometimes don't get tax money from um, grants and things like that from the federal government. But typically, most of their funding is is private and public universities are going to get most of their funding through these various taxpayer avenues. So it gets tricky because... You look at that small 7% of schools and you, you, you focus so much on how much those schools are making, but the reality is is that most college athletic programs, like I mentioned before, they're not actually profitable at all. And so you have a small group of people funding the rest of the other athletic programs. In fact, a lot of them cost more to run than they generate in revenue, like I mentioned, meaning that they're a lost. And it's really difficult to know or I shouldn't say difficult to know, but nonprofits run differently than corporations. They don't function in the same way. And so unlike a corporation, which is allowed to report its losses and its gains, nonprofits, if they experience a loss, they don't have to report it as a loss. They can report it as breaking even. So most college athletic departments don't ever actually report that they had a loss. They just report that they broke even because, I mean, it don't really matter. They're going to get their funding either way because they're nonprofits. Um, and so... Some schools even still, on top of that, they actually report their athletic subsidies as revenue. And so a subsidy is is money from the government, and they count that in as, as revenue when it's not the same thing as revenue that's coming from like ticket sales or media rights. So it gets tricky because you have these different kind of streams of revenue, but they're not equal in a way. I hope this makes sense, you guys. It was a really difficult topic for me to research, so I hope I'm making sense um, and connecting with you guys in terms of what exactly I'm trying to say, but it's like you have to understand that not all revenue is the same, and so there's taxpayer revenue, there's donor revenue, there's alumni revenue, there's NCAA revenue. Like You have all these different sources of revenue, and it just gets really, really muddy, and it gets really, really complicated. Another factor to consider, too, which is something that I saw firsthand when I was in grad school at USC for a little bit of time I was there. <laughs> but I was there long enough to get hip to some things. USC hipped me to a lot of games. And a lot of alumni, really, really wealthy alumni, especially at private universities or boosters, as they're sometimes called, they will make huge donations to athletic departments or to universities in general. And a lot of times you will see that manifested in super lavish facilities, super state-of-the-art sports complex or educational complexes. So for example, the Fertitta family, they have children and cousins and whatnot that go to USC in Los Angeles. And so they've donated a ton of money to that university and built different academic buildings. In fact, there's a building in the business school that they funded 
completely. I think they put down like $25 million. And because of a time of their donation, one of their cousins was an underclassman. She was a freshman. Um, they put in a rule at that building that all of the like private study suites would be undergraduate and freshman preference first. So could you imagine a bunch of like MBA students, business graduate students trying to get access to these study suites and we couldn't have them because they were purposely prioritized to freshmen. So you would be sitting there waiting to get in this study suite and then a bunch of 18, 17 year olds would be like, oh, sorry, I'm going to get the study suite. And you're just like... But that's what donor money will do. When you pop that tag, when you write that check, you get to dictate exactly how these funds are spent. So that's essentially what a lot of these smaller, not smaller schools, but private schools are doing. They're getting a lot of outside money from these donors, and that's how they're funding some of these crazy, 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 crazy facilities that you see at a lot of these really, really big schools and complexes. I do want to talk about something else, though, which is called the Flutie effect. And the Flutie effect is named after Doug Flutie, who was a football player who won the Heisman Trophy from Boston College, another private university. Um, And basically, his effect is that when you win these championships, you raise the, the recognition of the school. So you're able to attract better athletes, better students, wealthier students. You can raise tuition because now it puts your school on the map. And so it it throws a wrench into the conversation again because you have more students wanting to apply, but are you necessarily admitting all of these students? Like, how does that work? The more students you have on campus, the larger and more extravagant your facilities need to be, the more kids you have to feed. So it's all just like a big black hole of like messy college university funding that is really too complex and I feel, and I'm not a, I'm not a pessimist when it comes to changing institutions in this country. Like y'all know, if you listen to my show, like I'm all about changing stuff up, doing what's best. But I really do feel like the college system in this country is so broken and so warped that if we focus on just paying a small group of student athletes, even if we do pay them, that's not going to change anything. Like. It's literally impossible to track the true profits and losses of these universities. And so it is corruption. It's corruption, just like I said, a lot of other institutions. And I just don't feel like paying these athletes is going to make any difference. I think that we need to completely change the way that we look at universities, how we look at college athletes, how we look at college students, what we're expecting out of college students, and redo the whole system, to be honest. So that was me breaking down a lot of the data. Give me a second. I'm going to come back. I'm going to get some water. I'm going to like dab the sweat beads off my face because it is definitely getting to be a Vegas summer. I'm getting hot. I don't have my air conditioning on yet because I don't turn my air conditioning on to May 1st. And it ain't May 1st yet, so I'm in here sweating. So give me a minute. I'll be right back and I'll break down like my final viewpoints or my final conclusions that I was able to draw from all this information and then hopefully give you guys um, some recommendations of what I think we could do to maybe make this a little bit more equitable. So don't go anywhere. No te vayas. Voy a regresar. 
Thank you so much for listening to my podcast, A Garden in the Desert. If you so far are enjoying this episode about NCAA basketball and college sports, please go and give me a review on iTunes or Spotify or leave me a comment on my SoundCloud. By leaving me a review, more people can listen to this podcast. And hopefully, if you've made it this far, we're damn near 40 minutes into the episode, hopefully you think that other people should listen to this podcast too. So I would greatly appreciate the reviews. And once again, and thank you so much for listening. Now let's get back into the episode. So at the end of my week-long study session on the NCAA and NCAA basketball, I had to come to some final conclusions, which I will share with you all as follows. Number one, you can't see my one. Number one, is the NCAA exploiting its athletes? Hell yes, it's exploiting the athletes like crazy. And here's why. Whether or not you pay the athletes or not, um, the reality is is that the vast majority of college athletes are not going to go pro. The odds of going pro in basketball are 1 in 12,000. The odds in football are 1 in 4,000. And the odds in baseball, I'll be honest, baseball probably the only one where you have a pretty decent chance, and that's 1 in 60, I was going to say 65,000, sorry, 1 in 659. Here's a crazy fact, though, you guys. Of parents whose children play high school sports, 26% of them think that their child's going to go pro. 26%. And guess what? That number jumps up to 40% when the annual income of that parent is less than $50,000. I live in Vegas, I have learned a little bit about odds, I have learned a little bit about gambling, and I have learned a little bit about people who make less than $50,000 a year. And the reality is, a lot of people who make that that amount of money or less, they are a little bit more prone to believe in kind of this big shot, one shot chance of making it big or getting lucky. And I'm not saying that people can't go pro because they can't. Lots of people go pro. In fact, there's a documentary that's going to be coming out on Showtime called Basketball Basketball County in the Water. And it's actually about my home county, Prince George's County, Maryland, where we produce an astronomically, statistically significant larger number of professional basketball players than they argue any other county. So, hey, if you're from PG County, you actually probably do have a decent chance of going pro. However, generally speaking, though, the odds are just not in your favor, darling. The odds are not ever in your favor. Especially when you consider that a lot of these parents think that these kids have an actual shot. So what a lot of these parents do is they put these kids into these athletic programs early. We're like, let me start them earlier. Let me start them as early as possible. That way I can make sure that they go pro. And what happens a lot of times is these coaches and these college recruiters, they know that already. They know that these parents don't know any better. They know that these parents have these dreams and they're going into these small towns, whether it's in Alabama, Oklahoma, Louisiana, wherever, and they're selling these people these dreams. Like, let me take control of your son, the most important thing in your life, most likely, and let me make him go pro knowing damn well, he probably ain't going to go pro. But if they can win a championship or two, they're going to make that $6 million a year. And that's where it becomes exploitation because you're targeting these African-American families and parents and these young guys, and you're selling them a dream and not providing them any compensation and not making sure that they get an education necessarily. Now, that is not to say that all coaches are like 
like this, I'm sure there's so many amazing coaches who do make sure their athletes get educated. However, a few bad apples and a little hypocrisy, like I was saying, that will spoil the whole bunch. My second conclusion is that the cost of education is just way too high. We all know this. The average student borrower who's paying back student loan debt is paying back about $30,000. That's a lot of money. In fact, a lot of these athletic programs that aren't profitable, they actually are passing on these costs to the students through tuition and fees. A bunch of smaller schools on the East Coast in West Virginia, Maryland, um, Virginia, Georgia even, some of them have even cut their football teams as a way to save money because they needed to refocus the school on academics and not pass that financial burden onto the students to an athletic department that isn't making any money and isn't actually attracting more students to come to the school. Like I said, the cost of education is just way, way, way too high. And because there's no way to track how these universities are dispersing this money with the true operational costs, blah, 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 there's just really no way around it. I think that the elite teams who are making all this money, they need to somehow be separated, whether that's separated from the NCAA, whether that's converted into a for-profit profit collegiate league, like whatever, like they need to be out so that the NCAA can just focus on the schools that need the funding to get these kids an education to make sure they're actually getting the equitable services that we deserve and that the students who aren't athletes, who are just regular students, aren't paying exorbitant higher costs for higher education. Like student loan debt needs to end. That shit needs to be canceled. And public universities need to be free for everybody, whether you play sports, whether you play an instrument, whatever the case may be. My third conclusion is that we are double dipping sports and academics and we are putting way too much pressure on student athletes and students in general. Like I remember when I was graduating from high school, there was all this pressure like you got to be getting straight A's, you got to be playing a sport, you got to be leading an organization, you got to be volunteering. Like it's so much that you're putting onto these kids. It's just not realistic. Like stop expecting these kids to have all this stuff. Like let them be kids, let them play sports and enjoy it let them go to class and learn like they don't need to check every single box on like this this resume of things that says that you're gonna be a successful young person like it literally doesn't matter you can go into college being a mediocre student being a mediocre athlete and you can succeed beyond belief just through a few week weeks (laughs) I'm having a lot of slip-ups today because I'm tired um just do a few years of consistent hard work. And we're just putting way, 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 way too much pressure onto these athletes and onto these students and onto young people in general. Like it's just, we're doing too much. My fourth conclusion is that college is not the only path forward to success. We push people into college. We hype up excuse me, we hype up a college education. We make it seem like you have to go to college. If you don't go to college at the age of 18, like you're a failure, you're a loser. And like, no, like take a year off, take two years off, go play in the G League, go play in a development league, go travel the world, go feed pandas in rural 
yin yang china like live your best live your best life like you don't have to go straight to college from high school it's just really not that deep you guys like there's so many other things that you can do that are worthwhile as a young person it's not for everybody and what happens when you force everybody into getting these degrees that maybe they don't need maybe they don't want then you have a system where everybody is overeducated, and now it's impossible for people to find high-paying jobs or it's more competitive because everybody and their mama got the same degree Like, these things to me seem so simple and so, like, straightforward. It boggles my mind that, like, we're not having these kinds of conversations on a widespread scale and that we're still forcing kids to go to college and forcing them down that college path. I personally believe that school should no longer be obligatory after the age of 16. At the age of 16, you should be able to decide, do I want to do two more years in college? Do I want to go get a job? Do I want to go to a sports academy? Like, I know that Kobe Bryant wrote a children's book and I was reading, I haven't read the book, but I was reading the description of the book. Um, And basically it's about an elite sports academy where like elite athletes are going to be educated in their sport. And like, why can't we have more of those? I don't know. I mean, maybe some of these retired, you know, all-stars and professional athletes are working on that. I really hope they are. I'm not like privy to the backdoor scene of like what they're doing in their free time, but I really hope that they are doing things to get these young people other opportunities. That's not just going straight to college. My last point is that entertainment is not the only way for a black man to be successful. In 2015, there was a study done that found, and this this study wasn't adjusted for race, but if we consider the fact that the majority of these athletes who we're talking about getting paid are black, I don't think you can ignore the racial aspect. However, that study found that to be a professional athlete was the number one choice for boy students of all ages and all geographic locations. That was the number one, like, what do you want to be with when you grow up answer, regardless of your age. For girls, it was a doctor. So clearly, we have a a lot of young boys who want to be professional athletes, and that's not a bad thing. However, entertainment is not the only way that people can be successful. And it's especially not the only way that black men can be successful. And there has long been a history of black people in general, but specifically we're talking about black men being used as entertainers for like the white public consumption. I went to a couple of NBA games um, this season before it got canceled. I got super lucky to go to a couple games before it got canceled. And I sat super, super close at both games like close enough to where I could see the players like super, super close. I could hear the coaches. I could hear the fans. Like I could see and hear everything. Like I was all up in the mix. And I was shocked and taken aback by just how much the fans feel like they can like talk to the athletes, like whether that's like heckling the athletes or like making little like snide, disrespectful comments. Like I was really, really taken aback by how bold some of these low level courtside like area fans were. And it just, it just rubbed me the wrong way. It made me feel like they were being really disrespectful because it's like, you're talking to a grown man who you know can't respond to you because he's doing his job. Like when I'm at my job and you talk to me crazy, I can't respond back to you crazy because I will lose my job. They can't respond back to you crazy either because they could get fined, whatever. So it's just like people really just be taking it too far. And there is a bit of like post-slavery undertone in sports and in entertainment when it comes to black men because you're having these black bodies 
for your consumption. And so if we're going to use black bodies for consumption, then I do believe that they deserve to be paid. I just don't know if it's going to be through the college route that they should be paid. I think we should look at increasing the number of minor leagues and semi-pro leagues, whether that's in football, basketball, baseball. Granted, I don't have much hope for them doing it in football because you know the NFL is, oh God, we talking about corruption in sports. Whew, the NCAA don't even scratch the surface. Like the NFL, I am I haven't been a fan of the NFL for a few reasons for a while. Um, but I do think that adding more semi-pro sports, like an opportunity for these guys to make money, even if it is just fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year for a couple of years, because the reality is is like if you don't get better in the semi-pro, if you don't get better in the G League, like are you gonna get any better in college? Probably not, right? Now, I know that going to college and being in the NCAA gives a lot of guys the exposure that they think that they need to go pro, but I think that some younger guys are starting to prove that maybe you don't need that exposure because if the NBA is checking for you in high school, they probably going to be checking for you in the G League, especially if you're putting up those numbers in a higher competitive area because you're now competing with other potential NBA players and not just other college players, so... That's my advice. If you're an elite player out there and you just happen to listen to my podcast, Lord Jesus, I don't know how you would have done found it. But if you are, please consider skipping college and going pro. If you are just a regular young person and you don't feel like college is for you, consider skipping college and doing something else with your time. Like college is not the be all end all. It's not the only way to be successful. And we just really need to open our mind to the other avenues for the past that young people can go down. So that concludes my episode. I know it was a long one. I know I talked a lot about a lot of different things. Hopefully it was useful for you guys. Hopefully you have a better understanding of exactly how the NCAA works, how this funding works, how universities are funded. And if you have any questions or if you want to debate me, if you think I'm wrong, if you think everybody should get paid no matter what, like hit me up, drop me an email, send me a message on Instagram. I would love to hear from you guys. Thank you so much for another amazing opportunity to share the things that I be having on my chest with y'all. Have a great night. Be safe. Jalen out.